Michael Douglas. In America, we have the freedom of speech. Come on, I want to be a parking lot, I buy a ticket. The right to disagree. Robert Duvall. I know who this guy is. In a Joel Schumacher film. What are you doing to the street? We're fixing it. What the hell does it look like? See, I don't think anything's wrong with the street. I think you're just trying to justify your inflated budgets. Well, I guess so. But I'll give you something to fix. What are you... Hey, Charlie! <laughs> Falling down. Let's call it a day. Come on. I'm the bad guy? A tale of urban reality. We the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Uh, greetings and welcome to Hit Factory. My name is Aaron Casillas. I am Carly Gomes. And we have a really special one today. Joel Schumacher's Falling Down. Uh, came out in 1993. So it's the same year as The Firm from our first episode. Really prolific movie year, 1993. It was a big one. We were looking at it and just doing a cursory glance over the first part of the year. Groundhog Day came out this year as well. Leprechaun, which you did not recognize as a title. Don't know it. Homeward Bound, The which Sandlot. I, which I do know. I very much know Homeward I, Bound. I love Homeward Bound. 1993 was, was a really stacked movie year. Uh, a couple of quick things by the numbers, then I want to get into like what the movie is about and talk a little bit about Falling Down. Uh, like we said, this movie was directed by Joel Schumacher, who passed away very recently, just the last week of June. Rest in peace, Joel. Uh, but left behind a legacy of a lot of really awesome 80s and 90s movies. All of them are just defined by muchness. Much. He, they're all much. He did St. Almost Fire. He did The Lost Boys. Batman and Robin, uh, and Batman Forever, which has one of the best soundtracks of the 1990s. It's up there. He did A Time to Kill, which is... So much. Two hours and 45 minutes just waiting to hear Sam Jackson say the line from the trailer. Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell! Powerful moment. Uh, and then he did this movie in 1993, like we said, starring Michael Douglas, who is... Playing really against type in this movie. And I would argue that this movie is playing against Joel Schumacher's type. Like, this movie is much, finger quotes, I guess. But I I actually have some thoughts around the ways in which that I I think it's a little bit... It's a different kind of much for, for Schumacher. It should be said that the first time I saw this movie, it was an accident. And it was on TV, presumably on TNT. Where all was, 90s movies go. Where all 90s movies go to syndicate. I was young at the time to be watching this movie. Like, I think I was maybe like 10 or something. Okay. <laughs> I did not see this movie until way later in my life. This is only the second time I've seen it. The last time has definitely been within the last decade. It's been a, it's been a stretch for me too. But I, I think when I think of this movie, I can't help but immediately go back to like this vision of myself sitting in my bedroom just watching it and being like really intrigued but not really understanding why what did 10 year old carly think of falling down i recognized michael douglas from a chorus line because of course i did <laughs> <laughs> and so i knew who he was yeah i think i was i was wrapped for reasons that i i don't quite fully understand or didn't quite fully understand um 
The movie takes place in Los Angeles. Michael Douglas's character, who we know to be uh, to be named William Foster later in the movie, but movie, but really is only given the moniker Defense based on his personalized license plate. Defense. D dash F E N S, all caps. And it's the only thing that he's credited as at the end of the movie. Very purposefully. Um, and it's something he's referred to as nominally a couple of times, even by other characters in the movie. For all intents and purposes, this movie is about this man's day, really afternoon. Um, slice of life. It's a slice of life. And uh, how he goes from sort of jumping out of his car in the middle of gridlocked Los Angeles back up to... The end of the movie, which is uh, lands him in a much more extreme place where he eventually dies. Spoiler alert. We're going to get out of the way right at the front. Spoilers. This movie came out in 1993. If you don't know already and if you haven't seen it, one, shame on you. Two. Not our problem. Not our problem. (laughs) So it's a zoom in on this man's afternoon and the events that transpire to get him from a frustrated driver to really at the end of his rope right to effectively a a psychopath and a murderer a by the end of the movie a psychopath and a murderer at the end of the movie and someone fully standing off with police it's a hell of an arc but it gets right into it it starts right away like it we remarked on it this time you even said when we were watching it we're 10 minutes in this movie and he's already bashing heads he's already beating up a minimart owner i actually in doing some research on this, found something that I hadn't even acknowledged or thought about. But someone cited this as sort of the uh, anti-Odyssey, where it is basically like an inverse of that story, where it is the wayward traveler returning home. But in this sense, home is not a place that he is at all wanted. His wife and his child um, have more or less distanced themselves from him. Barbara Hershey plays his wife in this movie. She has a restraining order on him. And is very fearful of him coming back. He has anger issues to the point of her fearing that he might become violent. We see that those fears are extremely founded. Like you said, 10 minutes into this movie. Uh, but he is. He's a wayward traveler. He is or has been on this journey for some time that has left him downtrodden and um, and scarred by war. And he's returning home. In fact, the first line that he says, he gets out of his car in the middle of bumper-to-bumper gridlock traffic. And somebody kind of says, where the hell do you think you're going? And he says, going home. Hey! Hey! And it's a refrain he um, he comes back to many times throughout the movie. It is his, like, guiding compass and the thing that reminds us what his singular purpose is. He has things that he's fighting against. But really, what he cares most about is getting home to see his wife, who is, in actuality, his ex-wife, and his daughter, um, whose birthday it is. And she is having a birthday party, and he wants to be there, and he wants to feel some sense of what he had once had. And that is sort of the moral center of the movie and the driving force. You said it's, it's the thing that he wants most, above all. I don't know about that, actually, because it sounds like what he wants is something that uh, is unattainable. Yes. Because throughout the movie, he sort of rallies against everybody and everything, which we will definitely talk more about. But there is this kind of sense of exceptionalism in the reverse. 
with the firm, which we talked about in the last episode, it was exceptionalism uh, in the way of success and drive and being a singular entity. In this case, he wants to be the only victim. But everything is a problem and everyone is the enemy to this person. What's interesting is what you said is he wants to go home, but home is, seems like it's a bigger thing than just a wife and a child. He wants to go back to a specific time and place yeah. where the ideals that he holds true to had more meaning and resonance. Yep, I think you're right. He wants to go back to a time and place when he still has his job, when he's still relevant, when he is still of value to society, when he can still provide for his family, when his wife still loves him, when his daughter still loves him, presumably to a time and place when America was finger quotes better. Because a lot of what this movie does is, I think, through through the lens of what we are to understand is Michael Douglas's character's perspective, we see kind of like the horrors of an urban sprawl like Los Angeles. And I think the the other thing just to say is that if we're going to sum this up in a reductive way, just to launch into a more substantive argument, one of the reads that I saw in looking up some conversations about this movie that happened at the time of its release um, was from a Washington Post um, movie review. You know, the author sort of says um, it's a movie about the everyman who faces traumas of everyday life hmm. that sort of stretch him to this place of snapping. He later goes on to argue that that's not really what the movie is about, but that is, I think that sort of sums up a, a narrow conceit of what this what this movie could be uh, described as. I'll say right away that I think both of us can agree that that is indeed a very narrow conceit of what the movie is. Yes. One of the things that we kept coming back to and time and time again, kept realizing about the criticism surrounding this movie, specifically by the film's detractors, is that it doesn't seem to get that the movie is not simply about somebody rallying against the minutia and the, the traumas, the traumas of everyday <laughs> life, right? Like all of these, so all these dramatic, all these pesky nuisances. Like that is not what the movie is actually about. And people's either unwillingness or their uh, lack of capacity to actually see who the real antagonist and the real enemy are in this movie is something that we're definitely going to talk about because I find that fascinating, and I think it's really fascinating too that a particular class and profession of people, namely critics in the media, were the people who missed this. And moviegoers. And moviegoers. M middle class white moviegoers of the early 90s. We should also mention the historical backdrop of when this movie was actually being shot. The right. Rodney King riots were happening. Right. On location in 1992, this movie was being shot in Los Angeles. A lot of this movie is smoky and hazy and looks and feels... Very Los Angeles. Like, this is a really great Los Angeles movie. Mm -hmm. I, I will cut off my big toe before I ever say, the city is the real third character. <laughs> but I will that. never say... But this is one of those movies where, like, you look at it and say, it's an, a perfect exemplification of Los Angeles. And it's, like, the gritty, gross Los Angeles, right? Like, this is not La La Land or, or no. one of those, like blitzing like Hollywood movies like this is like a gross gritty sweaty Los Angeles that feels way more real and lived in well and you know the city may not be the third character but Bart Kowiak's cinematography 1000% is a formidable player in this movie I want to talk about that so the cinematographer we're gonna butcher his name maybe every time we say it we'll I try. did maybe an okay you, you job. did a great job 
Andrej Botkowiak. Andre, Bart, well, let's call him Andy. Can we just call him Andy? I think that's mean, but sure. Let's just call him AB. AB. We'll call him AB. That that sounds better. That seems more respectful to him that's and his like craft. That's like us white people being like, <laughs> we can't say your name. Can we call you Bob? He's Polish. He's he's white. It's, it's fine. It's fine. It's We're fine. allowed to do that. But uh, he's a pretty prolific cinematographer. Uh, a couple of hits of his. He did uh, The Verdict. He did Terms of Endearment. He did uh, Twins. With Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. No. Yes, he, he did. did not. And then after this movie, in the middle of the, the 90s, uh, in 97, he did a movie that I love. Great, uh, pulpy disaster movie, Dante's Peak, with mm, Pierce Brosnan. You do love that movie. And uh, The Devil's Advocate, with Pacino, Charlize, and Keanu. And he did, as you mentioned, also do The Holy Trifecta. Yes, he did this as a director, though. So I think he was lensing and directing this. The Holy Trifecta of early aughts action movies, Romeo Must Die, Exit Wounds, and Cradle to the Grave, all of which star DMX. X gonna give it to us, AB gonna give it to us. They did. They did. They did. They, gave it to they us. really gave it but, to us. Um, I think that is, in terms of the players in this movie who we can cite as MVPs, he is absolutely one of them. Early on in the movie, the very first shot is this really mesmerizing kind of tracking shot that starts in the car with Michael Douglas's character defense and slowly pulls out and kind of scans the entirety of the traffic. It goes up and shows like the children in the window. Um, and then it pans down and shows this American flag draped on the bus. Oh, I made some notes about the American flag. It's all over the place in this movie. The iconography in this movie is not subtle. I think there's a lot of overt iconography, yes, but I also think there is a lot of there are a lot of subtle details in the shots and in um, a lot of the scenes that I think are the underneath layer. Like I think there's a lot of overt, but also more nuanced things being communicated visually in this movie. I would agree with that. But uh, one thing that Schumacher and AB really, really like focusing on and emphasizing are American flags, mm -hmm. specifically tattered American flags, American flags on the ground, and then a lot of Christ iconography as well, mm -hmm. which is something that that defense seems to internalize in the story in the way that he kind of becomes a martyr at the end um, in order to earn like a life insurance payout for his family. Mm -hmm. That is definitely something that I want to go into. Before we continue, though, I want to ask the least pertinent question, but one I want to know the answer to. Is this Michael Douglas's best role of the 90s? So leading up to this, here is a sound off of just a couple of the movies he had done prior. And these are the big hits, not necessarily his entire lexicon. The 20th Century Masters compilation of Michael Douglas. Films. Sure. Perfect. I'll take it. 1985, A Chorus Line, previously referenced, have seen multiple times as a dancer and a person obsessed with anything related to dance and Broadway. Gotta be in the canon. Chorus Line. Um, Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, War of the Roses, and then Basic Instinct, which he did in 1992, right before this movie. When you said Fatal Attraction, I thought you were talking about Basic Instinct. Interestingly, right. he did both. He did both. Um, they're very similar. And to answer your question of do I think this is Michael Douglas's most formidable role? Not even. Do you, do you think it is his best role? Which is a completely arbitrary and nebulous term, but is... For me, I think that this is one that stands out just because, like we've already said, it is so against type for him. Yes. It is one that 
explicitly and deliberately diminishes his sexuality, his physicality, and all the things that make him like an attractive leading man in favor of something much more kind of plasticine and sexless for for good reason. But he does so much with that still. I would argue that this is probably one of his best roles, if not his best role, just in terms of performance, precisely because of how off type it is, but also because I think it's easy to get the sense that this character could have been played extremely ridiculously. I think he manages to bring a lot of depth and nuance to this character without being cartoonish and doesn't play it straight down the road. I think this this man is unhinged in ways that even, like you said, when he's when he's sort of not exploding or beneath the surface, there's that sense of seething. So yeah, I think this could this is could probably be his best role. One of the things that I found most interesting is the first shot tells us right away this is going to be a movie where Michael Douglas is not the Michael Douglas we've seen him in the movies prior. He is a sex symbol. He is a leading man. He is someone with swagger. And the first shot of this movie is a super, super tight close-up. Just like on his on his eyes and his specs. On his mouth. Oh, that's right. It's his mouth. On his crooked mouth. And he's... Which you notice more so in this movie than any other movie, that he has naturally a sort of crookedness to his mouth. And the first shot is a is a really tight close-up on his mouth, and he's just at the edge of a snarl. And then it pulls back, and we see more of his face. You realize immediately you are looking at a different Michael Douglas. He is completely desexualized, and they do a lot of work in the styling and the you know, the scripting of this character to desexualize him. Aesthetically, they style him basically like a a drone of like 1950s white collar um, associate level industry, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. But they have a really hard time hiding the fact that Michael Douglas is pretty jacked in this movie. So jacked! (laughs) And he, and like, I mean, his pecs are sticking out. Like he's got like formidable biceps and forearms, like even in this like Dwight Schrute outfit that he's wearing. Really? tight waistline just like they are doing a really really good job of masking that but it is still there so much so that it actually like even comes out more profoundly in some of the iconography that i've seen in drawings and in like action figures that we were finding (laughs) where people just like i mean they make him look like an action figure right and give him just like this like bulging physique but he is kind of that in the movie he is even so, you're right. They like do a lot of work to kind of mute his physicality. They mute his sexuality and make him something a little bit more gray and bland. You say that he plays it very nuanced. He plays it with a certain level of depth. And, you know, his idiosyncrasies don't ever stand out like this cartoonish character. One of the things that I noticed while we were watching it and, and in reviewing some of this is how much... That is a byproduct of Schumacher's direction a little bit, Mm. where all of the characters surrounding him feel more cartoonish. They feel like without, you know, for for lack of a better term, they feel like stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And one of the big criticisms this movie gets is that all of its secondary characters, including the characters of color, are reduced to these kind of one-dimensional stereotypes. The interesting thing about this, and you remarked on this while we were watching the movie, Carly, was the sound design. 
specifically in that very first moment, it builds and ramps up and and there are the sounds of this fly buzzing and the sounds of the horns and the sound of tickers on on the road signs and idiots on cell phones idiots on cell phones and everything builds in this like chorus and cacophony of noise until it breaks and then we are out of the moment and when we come out of that moment one of the things that i found interesting is how it felt like we had kind of been plugged in and are now experiencing the subjective experience of defense mm-hmm. And so when we look at the rest of the characters and how much they overact and and how much they're reduced to sort of monoliths in this movie, one of the arguments that I think could be made about it is that that's a deliberate choice where all of these characters are reduced to these monoliths. All these characters are stereotypes of who they actually are and come across sometimes as just like really terrible because it's how they're perceived by the main character. Precisely. Most of the time, these characters are snide. They are cruel and most of the time they they act like not just metaphorically but they actually like literally tell defense to fuck off Mm -hmm. and i couldn't help but feel like all of that was his reading and i think there are a lot of cues in the cinematography that signal to us that we are seeing these people from his perspective there are a lot of tight shots Mm -hmm. not just on him but also on other things and people in the surroundings which make you feel like it's someone's eyes focusing on a thing and so i think that the the cinematography supports that argument and also that the reductiveness of the secondary and tertiary characters, mostly the tertiary, that pepper his surroundings, I think they also lend credence to what Schumacher is trying to do, which is indict a lot of things. Um, Specifically, if we got into it, the indictment of a capitalist nation, the indictment of consumerism. And I think reducing down some of the tertiary characters into stereotypes is not done so to make the conversation more binary, but rather to heighten the ridiculousness of modern America. One of the things that I want to talk about is the victims of defense's hostility, because they are, are many. And he starts this movie, like we said, wanting to go home. And quickly he attacks a Korean grocery store clerk, or rather a, you know, kind of a a quick mart type of thing. And he comes in and complains about the prices and complains about the fact that this man won't do him a kindness and give him change for the payphone. He subdues him. He takes a baseball bat from him that he uses to try to hit him and intimidate him out of the store and starts smashing this business owner's merchandise. Starts asking, what is the price of this thing? What's the price of this thing? And doesn't like the answer and starts smashing everything. He specifically says he wants them to go back to 1965 prices. Which is an interesting point. Which one could argue is maybe the last time this man felt relevant and useful and, you know, served a purpose that gave him reason to get up in the morning. One of the other things that he does shortly thereafter is getting he gets into a fight with a couple of latino gang members uh who claim that he is on their turf on their territory and then ask for his briefcase as a toll for trespassing he says i don't see i didn't see a sign anywhere the gang members point to a piece of graffiti on like a concrete slab that he's sitting on while he eats his lunch we'll see the trespassing signs later that are 
actually deliberate and written and he still decides to violate those signs right Um, because in this moment he says i don't see a sign anywhere and they say that's a sign that means that you're on our fucking turf and he says well maybe if you wrote in english I could understand it. Um, again, like a very jingoistic, like really coded racial thing about like English being a primary language. And totally. He And he says the same thing to the Korean store clerk as well, where he says, you come to my country and don't even bother to learn my language. Yeah. He says something else too in that scene that I think is really, really telling and profound because he says he'll say it again later when he's in the burger joint as well in the fast food stop. He's advocating for and defending his right as a consumer. Mm -hmm. The fact that people of this particular mindset who feel this level of victimization can't think of anything more creative and more profound uh, a purpose in their lives than to get to buy shit. Because that's the thing that we're sold from birth, right? Mm -hmm. Is that our purchasing power and our capacity to make things and earn a living wage and buy things are the end all of our worth. Our purchasing power and our capacity to buy things is a proxy for our individual freedom, which is a fucking nightmare, if you ask me. (laughs) It is a nightmare. But that is precisely the thing we are told and sold. And it is, you're right, it is exactly the thing that he is claiming as his, as his like birthright that's been, that's being thwarted by these various these various obstacles that he runs into. Right. It's all a persecution complex. Everyone is out to get him. This person is trying to rob him by charging him too much. Uh, these other people are taking claim to land that doesn't really belong to them. And, and so he has to defend himself against it. And then we get to the whammy burger, which is like one of the most famous scenes in Such the movie. Such a good scene. Where he is uh, frustrated that his liberties are being infringed upon to enjoy breakfast because he's three minutes late. And they the stop man sur- wants breakfast after 1130. He just God wants a womlet. <laughs> he, he wants, wants a womlet. And so, you know, he goes kind of berserk in here and fires some shots off. He pulls the gun. They make him serve breakfast. And the best thing about the scene is eventually he sees someone eating a burger and tells the manager, actually, I changed my mind. I will have lunch. I'm going to have that burger. So it's all for naught. Like this whole thing is escalated because of a desire that he is then... He is he's then robbed of or, or rather someone else shows him that that desire is not the reality of his situation, that he should want something else. Or one of the things that comes up in a lot of these exchanges is the thing that he is fighting against is the thing that he's fighting against in the moment of exchange with the other person, whoever his adversary is, getting in the way of him getting from point A to point B or just having a thing that he wants. And then when he gets to the end of that exchange, that thing is no longer relevant. I think the thing that's so interesting about the the Whammy Burger, if we want to talk about cartoonishness, this is one of the, the set pieces of the movie that feels the most cartoonish, but I think purposefully so. There's a reason that it is in a fast food chain where all of the extremes that we, all of the things that we associate with a fast food restaurant like a McDonald's or a Burger King are ratcheted up 10 points. Right. It's, it's the, already kind of a violent parody of consumerism. Like it's a microcosm of consumerism that is so extreme, right? It is, it is all quick, easy, and insubstantial. 
and primary colors just everywhere and uh, iconography of branding, you know, being thumped against us, right? Just burgers and, you know, statues of the burger guy and all the things. The costuming is even very classic, like McDonald's as well. It is not modern stuff. It's it's like the, the weird, like, paper, like, boat hats. Well, and- so, but it is cartoonish in the sense that they are wearing burgers on their heads. That's which right. I've never encountered in real life a fast food chain where they're wearing burgers, but it is, like I said, it's, it's a ratcheting up of, like, all the absurdities of a space like that but then taken up to the 10th degree in order to really situate us in a space where we understand the antagonisms here. We see, again, if we're arguing that we're seeing this space potentially from defense's perspective, one could argue that this is how he sees a space like a whammy burger, right? right. Just all of this cartoonish absurdity of consumerism and of capitalism where everything really is quick, easy, and cheap. He doesn't just target minority groups. He doesn't just target working class people. Mm -hmm. Eventually, through his arc, he starts moving towards the elite class as well. The first time this happens, he's cutting through a golf course. And again, absurdly cartoonish older men in brightly colored polos and golf hats start hitting golf balls at him and complaining that he is on their property. On their turf. On their turf. Very much like the gangland heroes from the first scene. A man without a home and a man without a place. Mm -hmm. And he's journeying now into the elite society who also don't want him. Yep. And in this scene, he creates a lot of havoc. He fires off a gun, basically induces a heart attack and leaves this man to die and winds up, like I said, cutting into a giant gated mansion that belongs to a plastic surgeon that actually has a no trespassing sign on it, which he still manages to ignore when he climbs over. It has a no trespassing sign and barbed wire. And barbed wire. Which he bemoans because he cuts himself on it. He goes to this home and pulls a gun on a family at a pool who we find out are not the owners of the home. They are there partaking of the privileges of the elite class as well. And it's actually one of the few moments where he shows any sense of relative sympathy to anybody. And part of it is definitely sort of a a class consciousness and race conscious sort of thing where he sees people who, like him, do not benefit or profit from the current circumstances and from from the system. Mm-hmm. It's It's a really profound moment in the movie because it's where he finally moves into that arc of having the realization that uh, he was in the wrong racket. Well, if we get into the question of good guys and bad guys and who is the enemy in this movie, this exchange in particular is a revealing one because it's the first time when he realizes that he may be seen as a bad guy. He runs up to the family and realizes that there are police nearby and that they need to hide. And so he pulls one of the daughters and the rest of the family into a corner and he's holding the daughter with his bloody hand and he's sort of spouting off to to the husband of the family and looks down and sees the blood and is horrified that he is maybe hurt this girl and he said he reacts and says oh my gosh you're hurt are you hurt you're not hurt honey are you and she you know flees into her mother's arms and there's an exchange where the you know the dad says something like just take me let them go 
And he, uh, Michael Douglas's character looks back at him in sort of bewilderment and says, you don't think I would hurt you, do you? You don't, you don't think I'm, I'm, I'm here to do something bad or something like that. It's one of two times where he remarks on his sort of shock and frustration at how he is being perceived. Once at the very beginning of the movie where the store owner after being kind of beaten by him and and defeated, says, just take the money. Mm-hmm. And he says, you think I'm a thief? And then at the end here, a similar parallel where he says, you, th- you think I'm here to hurt you? Like, you think I-, I would hurt your family? I would never do that. Yep. Despite the fact that at this point, he has already killed people. Right. And then at the very last scene, that thought crystallizes into what's at the core of it, which is, he literally says the words... I'm the bad guy. And it's with his in his exchange with Robert Duvall's character. Right. Pendergrast. Pendergrast. When that comes to full fruition. And then he asks, when did that happen? I did everything they told me to do, but they lied to me. And Pendergrast says, this is what this is all about? Because you got lied to? They lie to everybody. They lie to the fish. They lie to the fish. But the interesting thing that you bring up is, yes, who the real enemy is. It is not the immigrant population. It is not the gang members. It is not specifically the men at the country club or the plastic surgeon. It's the system that lets certain people prevail while others suffer and doesn't do anything to acknowledge that suffering. And we talked about this in terms of this reflection of a kind of horrific late stage capitalist state. And it comes out in a lot of interesting ways, right? It's it's specifically about the fact that Defense is unemployed, unbeknownst to his uh, mentally ill mother and, and pretty much everyone else in his life. He hasn't been employed for the better part of a month or two, but still goes every day to sit somewhere and eat his lunch and look at classifieds. Which is the only thing in his briefcase, which, by the way. Which is classifieds <laughs> in his lunch, his like smashed sandwich. He is also very mentally ill. And so we see also the failures of a state and a nation that does not promote or take care of its people when it comes to their mental health. There's a kind of sly response to the military industrial complex in here as well. One of the things that we contextualize with this movie is that it was shot during uh, the riots in Los Angeles around the Rodney King beating. One of the other things that is really important to mention is that this comes at the very tail end of the Cold War and after our uh, involvement in the Gulf War as well. So. One of the big things that happened in one of the elements of the recession of the early 90s is that defense contractors got laid off in droves. In fact, like something like a, a, a quarter of a million defense contractor jobs were lost. And I looked this up because it's an amazing and shocking statistic. Literally 10% of that entire sector lost their jobs basically overnight when we didn't have anyone to fight or kill anymore. Which is interesting to think about the larger implications of what wartime does for an economy versus peacetime. Absolutely. And how literally like things going well domestically and abroad means that things actually don't go well for a lot of people in the populace. One of the things that came up when I was looking at the early 90s recession was that it was actually labeled as one of the shortest of all of the post-war recessions, indicating that this happens every time we pull out of a military conflict, Mm -hmm. which is horrifying that (laughs) when we don't have anyone to drop bombs on, anyone to shoot, 
and and people to make those things to kill other people from other countries that all of a sudden we suffer economically and people lose jobs and then we don't have safety nets for those people who helped us in those helped us in those war efforts whether they did so in the military fighting as you know soon to become veterans or you know people like defense who were building missiles and um, and doing a lot of these other like armament jobs. There's even a reference at one point where a homeless person asks defense for food, for money, for anything. And he continually rebuffs this person. And the man finally tries to appeal to him on an emotional level and says, come on, man, I'm a vet. And he says, you're an animal doctor? He says, no, I'm a veteran. I fought in Vietnam. The guy is clearly too young to have fought in Vietnam, which defense points out. And then he says, I meant the Gulf. Come on, man, just just give me something. It is kind of played as like a joke and, and uh, a, a falsehood in this person's identity. But we see people of that ilk all over this movie. Mm-hmm. We see homeless people. We see characters who are ravaged by the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. of the 1980s. We see people who uh, have also lost their jobs. There is a really, really poignant scene while Defense is shopping for a gift for his daughter's birthday across the street in front of a bank, there is a black man in the identical costume to Michael Douglas, tie and all without the glasses, protesting with a sign that says not economically viable because he lost his job, was denied a loan, was basically told that he had no worth because he had no material wealth. Mm-hmm. And all of these people populate this entire movie. It's something that I feel like people missed, which is shocking to me because it's everywhere. These things are like, it bludgeons you over the head. Well, so I wrote this down when when I was taking some notes. If you think about watching this movie from the perspective of your average moviegoer, your middle class, uh, moviegoer of the early 90s and the critics writing about this movie, they are not attuned to the horrors of an overflexed capitalist nation. One, because they haven't experienced them. And in the case of a lot of the writers at WAPO and, you know, other people in the media. Richard Schickle from Time also hated it. They're not attuned to it because they are a part of the very system that uh, this movie is decrying. And so they may be unattuned to these critiques and these horrors um, willingly because it doesn't serve them to, you know, be critical of the system that they are a part of, or it may just be, you know, complete blindness. I think the thing that I find really interesting about this movie, if we think about it in the context of some of the thesis arguments we were making in our first episode about The Firm, is that so many movies in the early 90s are about or rather reflect this period of stability and opulence for a middle to upper white elite. And that this movie came out the very same year of The Firm and does not do that. It does not reflect the opulence. It does not celebrate the nation the ways that we talk about some of these other movies like Patriot Games or, you know, Air Force One do. Right. It goes out of its way to 
in fact, criticized the notion of a classic American dream and that bootstrap idealism that we saw being glorified in the movie that came out the same year, The Firm. And really criticize the things that this country touts as pillars of pride. It criticizes those very things, the military complex, consumerism, individualism, freedom, finger quotes. Um, One of the things that it also criticizes in a more subtle way is law enforcement. Yes. It's a thing that we were kind of talking about already when we asked, you know, who are the good guys in this movie? Obviously, defense has the realization, I'm the bad guy and his victims aren't the bad guys. Mm -hmm. But it also goes out of its way to make us certain that the LAPD are also not the good guys. They're totally hapless. Like, this is not like a cops versus robbers type thing or this is not like an inversion where our main character is the bad guy and the good guy is the antagonist, anything like that, right? Like this is not like a a fugitive, which is like a more reductive version of the same kind of cat and mouse sort of game. Mm -hmm. But when you look at it, Robert Duvall's character, Pendergrass, and a lot of the members of the LAPD all sort of fall into these same categories of jingoism, racism, uh, you know, sexism, pensions for violence, All of these things are still there. Pendergrass himself, there's a moment very early on when the shopkeeper comes to report the incident at his store and he's brought in by a detective who is a Japanese man. We know this because Robert Duvall asks him to translate for the Korean American store owner and he points out, I can't do that because I'm Japanese and he's Korean. And Pendergrass like, kind of plays it off like, oh, well, okay, okay. you know, like I, I, I didn't realize. But when you realize that this is a person who also reduces the people around him and the people who are even his colleagues to the racial stereotypes and these monoliths that defense does too, you realize that these guys aren't necessarily, you know, doing the Lord's work. They're not people who are the moral center of the story trying to subdue a bad person. Really all they are, and it's kind of exemplified in that final scene, are people who have figured out the facade and just accepted it. Like they are the conformist while while defense is a person who has stepped out of line and has to be subdued. That is what it is. I would argue that Robert Duvall's character and defense are mirrors of one another in in terms of where they're situated against their the monolith of who they're representing. Robert Duvall's character is not exceptional in any regards. He's just a guy who he's retiring and he's a guy who happens to go a little bit further than some of the other more incompetent cops who he's surrounded by. And, and in general, the cops are not painted well in this movie, as you said. They are largely, in every scene they um, populate, are portrayed as dismissive, incompetent, and and by and large just kind of feckless, like not really doing anything. They're completely worthless. There's a scene where, or multiple scenes, where Barbara Hershey's character, Defense's wife, calls the police because he's calling her as he's making his way south towards their home in Venice and fearful for her safety and her daughter's safety because she has a restraining order against him. And the first round of cops kind of blow her off and say, sorry, we can't really stick around. I think that he probably got some sense in him and isn't coming, but also he never hit you. So there's nothing we can do. And then later on, there's a female cop who comes by who gets called again after there's an even more threatening call where he basically implies that he's going to kill her. And when she's leaving, she says, 
The only thing you can do to protect yourself is the next time a measure comes up on your ballot to add more patrol cars, you vote yes. Doesn't that just sum up our current moment in 2020 so perfectly? My jaw almost dropped when, when I heard it because it's that same rhetoric, right, of like, uh, well, if we defund the police, who's going to take care of us? Like, we need more cops to right, make sure the want, bad guys don't do If anything. you want crime to stop, give us more patrol cars. Instead of, why did this man slip through so many cracks and find so many instances where he was not supported? Now, I am not saying that he is, you know, by any means the underdog or meant to be a sympathetic character, but... There is a reading, a 2020 reading of this movie to be had where we look at all of the ways in which the state has failed him. And not that he isn't justifiably a bad guy. He is. He absolutely is. And he does things that make him that. But how does someone get to that point of extremity in their life? There's a version of this where defense is taken care of and doesn't pass through the cracks and the voids in our social safety net or a non-existent social safety net where he gets mental health care. He gets unemployment insurance. His wife and daughter are protected by, you know, social workers and, and the restraining order is enforced. One of the biggest things about this movie that I find so frustrating is the criticisms of it or even the defenses of it as like a movie that people enjoyed where they say, oh yeah, like I sympathize with defense's character because I also hate traffic. That is not the point. It's not about hating traffic. It's about the fact that we sympathize with him because all of the gripes that he has, all the hostilities he has towards the system are actually founded in something real. His rage is not justifiable, but the foundations of the critiques are. That is not to say that he is not the bad guy in this movie. He is He is not to be read as some sort of right wing working class hero that a lot of people in that political space in today's time read him to be, nor is he this like thoroughly rotten bad guy. There's a more nuanced understanding to his character. And I think the the thing that I find interesting about the way this movie was critically received and um, received by audiences is by and large reflected in some of the sort of misreads of the movie itself in that I think a lot of people didn't like this movie because it was a not reflective of an experience that they personally were having, right? You could argue that many of the people going to see this movie were middle-class people of a certain means that could not engage with these feelings of disenfranchisement that he was battling with. To your earlier point, it was a very short recession, right? Um, and, and only a certain sect of the population experienced it. And we sort of wrote that off as a casualty of non-war. So there's the, you know, the experiential dissonance that could be made for like why audiences didn't receive this well. But I also think there is... Um, there's the argument to be made that this is not what people of the time wanted to have a discourse about. Whether it was, you know, their experience or not, it was a time when, because we were in a relative state of peace, that was meant to be celebrated in popular culture and in the media we were consuming. And largely it was a time for us to pat ourselves on the back. 
not to say, wait, but look at all the ways in which we're still fucked up and look at all the ways in which this society is still failing a lot of people. Part of this is the fact that by 93, when this movie comes out, like you said, we're out of this recession. We just, you know, kind of kind of gotten past this particular pressure point and we're back up at 1980s growth and expansion, right? And the, the economy is doing well again. Another big thing here, like you said, is it was a very specific kind of person that was out of work. But I mean, it, like the statistics said, it's, it's a quarter of a million people. Like it's not a small amount of people who identify specifically and directly with this person in the movie because they were also of the same profession. Like it was a mirror image of them. One thing that I thought about- But like, do those opinions matter, right? In the larger like landscape of popular culture, they absolutely do. But I'm saying like, I think the argument to be made is yes, that was a formidable amount of people, but you know, society at large was not necessarily listening to those gripes. Right. That's the point I'm making is that nobody gave a shit. Right. And people still don't give a shit. But one of the interesting things about this that I was thinking about as I reflected on it was that if this movie had come out even like three years later, there would have been a larger portion of the population that may have resonated with. By 93, like, at you know, a few months after this happens, we ratify NAFTA and then it goes into effect the following year in 1994. Over the course of the entire decade puts the better part of a million people out of work moves a bunch of industry overseas, like affects by and large, not overseas, but south of the border, mm-hmm. affects a ton of working class Americans who all of a sudden have this very real gripe that they see reflected back to them in this movie. We weren't at a point yet where this movie was probably gathering that level of kind of cultural consideration to be something like that. But I think about the fact that this movie would have resonated more if that were the case. Well, that's why we see movies like The Fifth Element and The Matrix and things like that. Sort of the argument we made in the episode prior about like early 90s movies really being a celebration of the nation and like really flexing into our patriotism, however you want to conceive that. And back half of the 90s being more critical bleak, very sort of like uh, fatalistic views of society. Right. But one of the things that is alarming and really infuriating about all this too is just the lack of acceptance of culpability on behalf of a lot of the players in this, right? Like the system that is keeping this person down, the system that has failed this person, a lot of those players are in our politics today. You Mm -hmm. know, like Joe Biden is somebody who was a principal you know, person who who helped get NAFTA ratified and 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 design this sort of free market trade agreement, and is a huge part of the way that our carceral justice system operates. Right, currently. he is kind of the architect of a lot of the systems that created the situation, the circumstances that we see in this movie, and that we see to even greater extents in the real world today. And even asked about it, like if he would apologize for this this particular thing, right? For for NAFTA, he's like, no, I, w- I don't want to apologize for anything. That level of denial, like that is the thing that is so insidious and so frightening about this movie as watched today in 2020, which is Absolutely. that same thing that made this character a victim and that we can find sympathy with because the things that he's feeling are real, even when the measures he takes are unacceptable, they still exist. They are a large part of why we're in the current situation we're in. They're a very real reason why the person who is president is who it is right now. It's just really fucked up and it can be really defeating seeing it and and realizing when we watch this, like, oh, this is 93. Like, this is almost 30 years later. It's been 30 fucking years and it is almost 
like a split screen mirror image of today's current current state of things. I want to shift gears really quickly and talk about some of the criticisms and the misreads that we already alluded to because there was lukewarm reception probably at best. There were some people who really liked this movie, but overall there seemed to be this really seething hostility toward this movie. I'm just going to read a couple of things really quickly if I can here. These are actually from the Falling Down website, which is still up, by the way, and has a lot of cool resources on the movie, including analysis, if you want to hunt it down. Is it, was the Falling Down website up in 1993? I, no, but fallingdownfilm.com. Okay. I don't know. It's it's very clearly made after the fact, but like, I mean, who knows? Anyway, Richard Schickel writing for Time Magazine at the time, said, often vulgar and exploitative, a dangerous and morally stupid movie. Uh, Joe Queenan, Movie Line Magazine in September 94, writing, a transparently racist attempt to create a fantasy world in which goofy white people get to beat the shit out of muscular ethnics. Using the term ethnic to begin with. Uh, Such a misread there, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, David Anson from Newsweek, very prominent critic, still working today. As far as I know, a slick, deeply confused exploitation movie. Schumacher veers recklessly between social satire, kick-ass fantasy, and damsel in distress melodrama playing the game for opportunistic cheap thrills. It would be easy to dismiss this as a simply dumb junk movie, but its pretensions render it pernicious. I think the thing that I find so problematic with so many of the reviews, aka misreads, is this through line that runs runs between them all critiquing its cartoonishness or its sort of like outlandishness that it's almost comedic and i think that that is too reductive a read of this movie and not understanding the ways in which while there may be cartoonish elements of this movie why that is a very conscious choice on the part of joel schumacher in terms of what he's trying to posit as ridiculous. And it sort of speaks to a failure of a lot of the members of this media elite and this professional managerial class that they don't see the nuances of what Schumacher is trying to convey in the movie. A lot of this is stuff that seems to go past them and that they miss. And this is not exclusive to people reviewing it at the time, even given uh, 20 years of like retrospect, members of the media and the critic circles still hate this movie. From 2012, there was somebody writing, Tasha Robinson from AV Club uh, did a segment for an article that was our most hated movies of the 1990s and said that this movie is, quote, a tone-deaf, self-pitying lament about the terrible persecution facing the oppressed majority in an era of political correctness and increasing multiculturalism. She goes on to say, it's seemingly meant as a sort of dark comedy about the petty annoyances of life and how they can accumulate and become so maddening that over-the-top cathartic violence seems like the only satisfying option. Again, one of those mysteries where I feel like the thing that people reduce it down to is a movie that tries to present itself as uh, collective frustrations around traffic or around high prices or around losing your job. That's the surface level stuff that's not examining the systems that create those petty annoyances, right. right? I think that the the WAPO review that was written on the release date talks about how this movie is, you know, about the traumas of everyday life, finger quotes, stretching a man till he snaps. 
And that is what you're saying, right? Where this too narrow a view focusing on the circumstances of the day rather than pulling back and looking at what those are casualties of is like the thing that runs constant in both reviews that laud this movie and reviews that also really loathe it. It treats it almost like like a, a Seinfeld bit, right? Where like totally. where where the comedy of it is supposed to come from our collective grievances against the mundane things that like a Larry David or a, or a Jerry Seinfeld would observe, right? Mm-hmm. But that is not what the point is. Like yes, those things are there. And yes, we can identify with those things in a certain regard, like who hasn't like gotten to a restaurant after it's closed or got into like a fast food joint after they stopped serving breakfast. Yes, those things are identifiable. But the thing that is more identifiable is the the suffering and the complete lack of of solidarity and connectedness to anything that could really help. And that's the biggest thing about this movie, which we already kind of touched on, which is This is rugged individualism in the opposite direction. It is rugged individualism that also says that while you succeed and pull yourself up, you do that alone. You also fall down alone. You fall down alone and you suffer alone. And if you do happen to suffer, if you do happen to find yourself in the cracks of our society, we are not going to be there to pick you back up. And the people that you encounter around you are not your comrades. They are not people that you should join together with against a system that has done you all really dirty. No, those people are your foes. Those are your enemies. And it's a thing when we get into and talk about sort of the context of it in today's society. This is exactly what Trump's fake populism is. Mm -hmm. This is exactly that. It is jingoistic, racist, just hatred. Everyone else is standing in your way. Right. The thing actually... The character who I drew a parallel to because he is in our recent memory having just watched this movie is Paul, Delroy Lindo's character in The Five Bloods, Mm -hmm. where in the same way as Defense, he is a character who is beaten and battered by the world and his experiences and had nowhere to turn and had nowhere to reflect his anger. And he is a black man living in 2020 who wears a MAGA hat because of it, because he heard what someone like Donald Trump said and could play off of that frustration economically and societally and say, blame everybody but us for this. But it is faux populism because he's not Delroy Lindo's character and defends. Neither of them look at their fellow man and say, wait, something's not right here. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Any sort of collectivism that's engendered by Trump's rhetoric is around othering others, right? That's the only way we understand a collective is by contrasting ourselves with someone who is not us. And the only people who might be a collective in that in that view of the world are the people who look and sound and dress and eat like me. Right. right? And drink the same beer and drive the same trucks and all of those things. But defense, to your point, is not served by this rugged individualism that goes in reverse, nor is he served by it if it was going upwardly. He is met with plenty of opportunities when he could turn to his fellow disenfranchised people, black, brown, 
um, white or otherwise, and have a conversation potentially about how they both ended up there. But he does not see those people as experiencing the same struggle as him. He rather only sees those people as indicators of how truthful his feelings are and how how justified he is in his anger. Right, and everything is internalized and uh, reflected back out in order to validate his feelings. The most poignant example of this is one we've already touched on when the gentleman is outside of the bank and he is not economically viable. He's wearing the same exact clothes as defense, and then he gets arrested by the police. And as he's being driven away, he peeks his head out of the car and says, don't forget about me or remember me, something mm-hmm. like that, and tells this to defense who nods and acknowledges. But he's incapable of seeing these other people as members of a collective group that are all disenfranchised and like finding solidarity in that. And in fact, when he steals that phrase later and refers to himself as econo- like not economically vi- viable, he doesn't mention this other person and his experience. He takes that person's wording and takes that person's message and utilizes it for himself and for his own validation. He co-ops it. And isn't that such a perfect crystallization of what the white man in America does? Um, but that's another conversation. It's, it's fascinating to me that he is literally met with a mirror image of himself and he is not able to stretch past the confines of American individualism and say, we share something in common. Um, well, and that's by design too, right? Yes. And it's one of the things that we point out when we talk about how the media missed this. I'm reading a book right now that's fantastic. Matt Taibbi, Rolling Stone journalist. It's called Hate, Inc. That's incorporated, not Inc. like I-N-K. And he has 10 rules for hate that the media perpetuates, right? This is not a new thing. This is just a thing that he's finally canonized and listed. And one of those things is hate people, not systems. And it's a thing that left-wing and right-wing journalism does, even the mainstream media, like a WAPO and like a New York Times, Mm -hmm. right? They will not have a conversation, because they serve corporate entities, will not have a conversation about a system that disenfranchises people, a system that preys on people, and a system that monetizes every single like human performance and interaction. What they will do is point the finger, right? And so the thing that's really easy to do in this movie is say, uh, defense is the aggressor. Defense is the problem. Men with persecution complexes are the problem. Mm -hmm. But again, the thing that he is rallying against and feeling is a real thing, even when we don't see it. And so it doesn't surprise me that an elite class of like media critics who don't feel this kind of thing and don't live in a particular part of the country where this thing is a reality don't realize this and don't see it and don't make it a part of their criticism. I think this is summed up perfectly in the closing paragraphs of the WAPO review. It says, Also, this time out, Douglas finds himself a little behind the curve. His character's lawlessness is founded on a combination of desperation and powerlessness. And while the forces of despair are still at work, meaning in 1993 America, That dead-end feeling of utter hopelessness appears, at least for the present, to have eased. While Douglas's every man is falling down, the country is getting up. Holy shit. And this is precisely what we were saying, which is that this recession was short-lived, first of all, and also felt not by the people who were in control of the narrative. So this man is literally saying, no, no, 
this movie is dumb because this country is doing great right now. The country is doing fine, right? And it's such a narrow and short-sighted thing too because this is not a new occurrence. This is a thing that happens routinely, periodically. And if anything, by 93 compared to like 1980, inequality was, you know, even more stark. But is easily dismissible when you're a writer for mainstream media, presumably of, you know, middle to upper class wealth. Like, no wonder this man's scope was so narrow in reviewing this movie. He literally says this movie isn't relevant because this country is doing great. Right, the economy no is great. No one is feeling the things that defense is feeling. That is more or less what this closing paragraph says, which when you pull back and think about it is utterly horrifying. And a blatant falsehood, right? Because when you think about who's actually doing great when you say the country's doing great, what you mean is GDP, right? And like the Dow are up, but like... That doesn't mean that inequality isn't rampant and that there aren't people on the streets and that people aren't losing their jobs by the thousands because we're not blowing people up anymore. And so the narrative at large is the country is doing well. Alt text, certain people in this country, the people who matter, finger quotes, are the ones that are doing well. Right. All my so, neighbors in Martha's Vineyard are doing just fine. So we can dismiss this one-off, like, outlandish experience that this man defends is having. Right. Like, I read that and was like, that feels like an argument that a certain kind of someone could make today, 30 years later. And, and is the same argument that's leveled oftentimes right now in the current moment at the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. Which is like, these aren't actually problems, guys. But it's also a thing that is reflected back to us so frequently, even in like the rhetoric of like the Democratic Party and their nominee right now, where it's like the thing that they're trying to appeal to is some uh, nostalgia for... 2008, right? In an era when things were better or, you know, pre-Donald Trump. And the thing is, like, that inequality that we talk about and, and those levels of, like, economic and social disparity are a feature of capitalism. They're not a bug. And so those things have always been there and are actually worse now than they were then. 2008, like, at the beginning of this financial crisis, we saw one of the most popular presidents of our lifetime get with a bunch of, like, Citibank cronies and bail out Wall Street and like the real estate industry instead of taking care of people. And we're still doing it. And we're still doing it. So people in the media continue to say, well, look at the numbers. Look at the Dow. Look at, you look know. Look at all my friends' barbecues. Right. We're fine. Look at Martha's. Look at S&P. Look at the rest of like my PMC friends out in fucking Bushwick or wherever, right? Like we're doing fine. And it erases and diminishes a reality that people keep trying to tell us about. It's a thing that people have been trying to tell us about during this entire pandemic and came to a head when people of color finally realized like along with all of the other elements of our lives being insecure, people are still dying at the hands of law enforcement. This movie, watching it in the middle of a global pandemic, in the midst of what is and will continue to be this country's biggest recession, and in the middle of one of the largest activist movements that we've ever seen, watching this movie, it was unnerving to me how on the nose and how relevant it felt. 30 years later, in having that consciousness, the only reaction to that is fuck. And that's, you know, the ultimate takeaway here, which is at the time, the message was dismissed. Today, the message is 
largely getting dismissed, but starting to break through, which is progress. But the one thing that, you know, you still don't see a lot of is at least our elected leaders reckoning in a really meaningful and profound way with these feelings of disillusionment and this inequality. One of the biggest things about the movie that I felt so profoundly as it pertained to the, the current moment is how easily we're at war with like the other side and how the right wing always gets portrayed as racist dolts, right? And that is the extent of their understanding and the extent of their experience where they're pointed to as saying like, you're idiots and uh, they hate black people. And that is it. But what people don't acknowledge a lot of times is that level of like frailty and, and, and economic insecurity that was very real, that populated and powered a Donald Trump presidency in 2016 that is also a part of the experience right now with the pandemic and 40 million people out of work. And so when you don't acknowledge that and you don't see those things as real, you know, kind of curvatures and and nuances of people's experience, you reduce it down in a way that doesn't help you to understand it and doesn't help you to acknowledge how to solve that thing. Yeah, which is another podcast episode. <laughs> um, but but I think the work that Schumacher was doing in this movie, I just appreciated that the things he's leveling his critiques at are still things for us to be talking about today. I don't appreciate that those problems haven't been solved, but I think that's why this movie maybe deserves a little a little bit more credit than it's ever gotten. Because I think that Schumacher was tapping into something that not a lot of other people in his industry, in his class, in his race, in his the space, the corner of this country that he occupied, that not a lot of other people were tapping into and really acutely aware of. And I think he does a really exacting job of illuminating those things, illuminating the casualties and the problems. And he does so in such a fearless and brazen way stylistically that 27 years on, this thing is not just thematically profound. It still pops and sizzles in every frame. It is a movie that you know, to sound corny and maybe cliche, like I could not look away from even as I was horrified. Mm -hmm. It begs the question, 27 years on, is Joel Schumacher's Falling Down a more relevant and just better film than it was at the time of its release in 1993? I think class signaling here, I will say it has aged like a fine wine. (laughs) It has gotten better with age and it's certainly more textured in 2020 than it may have been in 1993. I'm going to agree with you there. And I think that about does it uh, from us. It was a a pretty long one today. But uh, we're going to wrap up here. Go see Falling Down, or rather stay in and watch Falling Down. Stream it. Stream it somewhere. Rent it somewhere. Pirate if you want to. Don't actually pirate. Um, Again, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at HitFactoryPod. And we'll have more of these coming to you throughout quarantine and beyond. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Joel Schumacher. Be the old school. Yeah, old school. We be old school. Yeah, old school. Been getting that money for a girl sweet as honey. Got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you waiting for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. I'm getting closer. Getting closer. 
to my little queen.